good morning. For those of you who have been here for the past year and a half, as I've been intermittently preaching at this church, we've been walking through the book of 2 Peter. It's good news. We're out of chapter 2. It was good, but we're out of chapter 2. We find ourselves in the 10th sermon of 2 Peter this morning. We will examine the first seven verses of this chapter. So open your Bibles with me, if you will. Follow along as I read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of God. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of gathering this day as the body of Christ, the body of your Son. Lord, nourish us this day through your word. I pray that our souls may be fed and that you would draw our minds heavenward to contemplate the return of our Lord and Savior Christ. I pray that you may open our eyes and soften our hearts to be edified and taught this morning. I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As you no doubt notice, this passage clearly teaches, very clearly, about the certain return of Christ. And the return of Jesus Christ to this world is well attested by the Scriptures. It's one of those things that once you notice it in the New Testament, you start seeing it everywhere. Because it is everywhere. Just to get this in our minds this morning before we dive into the text, here are several verses that deliberately and clearly point to the fact that Jesus is coming back. Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, Jesus says this. He says, But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. John 14, also Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the angel speaks this to the apostles. The angel says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, Paul says, Maranatha, come Lord. And then Colossians 3, which I understand many people are doing a study through. Colossians 3, verse 4, Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. And lastly, the very end of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, John says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. If you recall, uh, Peter has spent the entire second chapter of this book discussing false teachers, their, their impact on the church and why Christians must be aware that just because someone speaks from the word of God does not mean that they're speaking of Jesus. And he's bringing this back to their most dangerous tactic. The most dangerous tactic a false teacher can employ is denying the fact that Jesus is coming back. This can happen either actively which we'll see in this passage where they're like, Jesus isn't coming back. Or it can happen passively, where you just never talk about it. Personally, I've witnessed the latter more in my life. But Peter began talking about the certainty of Christ's return all the way back in chapter 1. If you turn just to the left a few pages, in chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So if, in, in a way, Peter's progression of his argument was assuring the Christians in this church that Jesus is coming back. And then he spends a good long while in chapter 2 talking about those who are denying it, and he's coming back again to the same topic, the certain coming of Christ. And it's worth asking the question, why is this on Peter's mind? Why is this the central thrust of his letter? It was a relevant question for the people of his time some 2,000 years ago. Because many of Jesus' words when he was on earth could easily be misconstrued and twisted to make it sound like he was definitely coming within the next 50 years. People were thinking about this. They were probably thinking, well, where is he? Maybe these Christians were suffering. The, the letter of 1 Peter certainly makes it seem so. The Roman persecution was only getting worse. They were probably thinking things like, Jesus, we thought all things were going to get better. And this is also a relevant topic to all of us this morning. So as we work through this text, here's a couple questions for you to ponder in your heart. How do you think about the return of Jesus? Is this your active hope? Do you think about Christ's return often? Is the return of Jesus something that's far off in your mind? Like college students, like retirement. That's like, whoo, that's way off in the future. For some of you younger people, maybe the idea of marriage, is just some, it's something way far off. Or maybe even death itself. It's just something, that, that's, I'll worry about that in 20 years. Is this how you think about Jesus' return? Is it... it is Christ's return something that you long for? Something that you pray for? Because the truth is that whatever is on your heart this morning, whatever is burdening you, uh, some desire, some longing, maybe healing from some kind of sickness or ailment, maybe you long for rest from busy work and weariness, maybe you're frustrated with battling sin in your life, and you're just looking forward to change. But here's the truth. The return of Christ is better than any of those things being solved. Do you believe that? I want you to ponder these questions that the joy of seeing our Savior return will outshine all of our other glows. Every last one. 
So our passage this morning has three parts. Uh, Peter has the reminder in verses 1 through 3. He talks about the scoffing in verse 4. And then he responds to this scoffing in verses 5 through 7. Let's begin by looking at the reminder, verses 1 through 3. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. You notice, right at the beginning, Peter is a pastor. He loves these people. He calls them beloved. They have a beautiful relationship in the family of God. And notice he also says, he says, this is my second letter that I've written to you. He's referring back to the letter of 1 Peter, which is great. You should read it. And he's saying all these things again because he loves them. Because he wants to be a good pastor. And you even see this modeled in parenting. No parent tells their kid to do something just once, right? Every parent reinforces by saying the same things over and over. And thank goodness my parents did that. Otherwise, I don't know if I'd still be brushing my teeth. So, a good pastor, like a good parent, repeats himself. And Peter is all about reminders. Once again, hop back to chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. He says this, he says, Therefore I always intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, as long as he's still alive, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Paul says something very similar in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Why why is the Bible all about reminders? Saying the same things over and over again. Because we need it. You need it. I need it. I don't know about you, I need reminders for everything, like the tiniest things. I am always talking to my iPhone, telling it to set me reminders. I'm always asking my wife to to remind me. I'm always telling my friends, like, you shoot me a text. Help me remember. I know I need reminders, and so do you. But here's the question. If we all know that we need reminders, why is it sometimes we come to church and we get all indignant when we hear the same gospel again? It's what we need. It's a sign of love. When a pastor reminds you of God's word and the gospel of Christ for the millionth of time, it's because he loves you. I think the greatest example of this, and Dr. Campbell mentioned him earlier, was Tom Hughes. I only knew him for the last five years of my life, sorry, of his life. And he was so faithful in telling me the same things over and over again. The amount of times that I heard the gospel of Jesus leave his mouth to me as an encouragement, it was crazy. He never missed an opportunity to remind somebody of the gospel. He was 102. Another example, I I heard of two students in RUF who, they're kind of, a thing that they do is whenever one of them is getting down or frustrated, the other one looks, looks to the other person and says, hey, what's the gospel? 
tell me the gospel real quick, which, you know, when you're frustrated is the last thing that you want to do. But that's, that's beautiful. That's the kind of culture of reminding that the church needs. I love you enough to tell you the gospel when you need it most. And so to hear Peter longs for this church and for us today to have a constant reminder that Jesus is coming back. And true to form, there are three things. I, it's in the text. I didn't put it there. There are three things that Peter wants us to remember. Uh, the predictions of the prophets, the commandments of the apostles, and the coming of scoffers. So let's look at the predictions of the prophets, the things said beforehand. It's, it's worth asking, who are these prophets? I, I believe he's mentioning the Old Testament prophets, which speak about the coming of Christ. Yes, you might be surprised. You can learn about Jesus' second coming by reading the Old Testament prophets. For example, uh, there, there are many passages in the Old Testament that speak of Jesus' sufferings. Probably the most famous one that comes to mind is Isaiah 53. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This speaks of Jesus. But we also have other passages like this in Isaiah 11, verse 6 through 9, is that say, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is right after a passage that promises that Jesus is going to come in the flesh. So you have this tension. Both in the same book of Isaiah, we, we read passages that speak of the, the sufferings of the Messiah, but also an age of perfection that is to come. We don't have this yet. So Messiah must come again, as we know from the prophets. So as an application of this, friends, you and I need to read our Old Testament. One of the worst faults that church can, can fall into is that the New Testament is just, you know, it's a little easier to understand. It's easier to grasp the gospel. So we're just, that's all we're going to read. That's all we're going to talk about. No. We learn about Christ from the Old Testament. Jesus has these beautiful words in Matthew chapter 13. He says this. He says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. We will see a fuller picture of Jesus if we immerse ourselves in both testaments, in both covenants. So one reason why, for those of you in RUF at Anderson, we've been preaching through the minor prophets, which I love. Because seeing Jesus in the Old Testament is stunning. So Peter encourages us to heed the predictions of the prophets, but also the commandments of the apostles. And right here, he equates, he says the apostolic teaching is on the same tier as Jesus. And that might sound confusing to you, so let me try to explain that. It's kind of like a babysitter to its parents, right? When the parents leave, they just want to get out and have their date. They leave the babysitter. And how you treat the babysitter usually is representative of how much you respect your parents. Or think of the professor who fills in a couple classes while the main professor is away. How you treat the representative shows your respect for whom they represent. I'm sure the babysitters in this room are like, amen, I wish it was like that. 
But Jesus says this to his disciples as well. He says, anyone who rejects you rejects me because I sent you. So Peter is urging this church to, whatever the apostles wrote, treat it as if I I wrote it. Because the Spirit did. And and these commandments they are to remember are most likely the, the demands for a holy life. We see this all through the New Testament. The the truth of the grace and the cross does not erase the need for holy living. And so to clarify, when he says commandments here, he's not saying that God loves you because you do well. It's not what he's saying. You are not saved by your good works. We are saved for good works, as Jeff was teaching earlier. God did not rescue Israel out of the slavery of Egypt because they were doing good things. No, he he pulled them out of bondage so that they could worship him and be a holy nation. And in the same way, Jesus died for you on the cross in order to make you holy and blameless, not the other way around. I just want to make sure before we move on that this is clear in our heads. It's so easy to mix this up in our minds, to think that somehow the favor of the Father and his love is upon us because I I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray. But here's the truth. If you're in Christ, nothing good you do could ever make God love you more because you already have Jesus. But the same side is also true. Nothing bad you've done could ever make God love you less. That's the richness of the gospel right there. Because when we believe in Christ, he becomes ours and we become his. Everything that is Jesus is imputed to us, and everything that is ours is imputed to him. So I just want to make that clear. As we read that we must remember the commandments, this, this holy living flows because we're already saved. This is not Peter saying, follow these commandments so that the Lord will love you. So the third thing he tells us to remember is that scoffers will come. Scoffers will come. What does it mean to to, to scoff? What does it mean to be a scoffer? This is important because Peter says knowing this first of all. Perhaps for most of us, Psalm 1 is what comes to mind. It's what comes to my mind where it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So what does it mean to scoff? One who scoffs is one who mocks at, spits at, defiantly questions the word of the Lord. Most likely, we've all encountered this to some degree in the world. Someone who, like the false teachers we talked about, they they know the commands of God, but they act like they don't exist, defiantly, brazenly. The, the, the first example that comes to my mind is when I was a freshman at Anderson uh, in the honors program there. The entire, our entire honors program is built on a Socratic method of discussion. And we were all uh, professing believers except for one man. He was a militant atheist. He was not there for discussion. He was not there to learn. Anytime anybody, which was usually me, brought up the word of the Lord, he would scoff at it. Be like, do you really believe that? Do you really think that's true? He would question everything defiantly, and his purpose was to get everybody to abandon it. And it, it made me mad. But thank goodness that was in the past, and the Lord is forgiving. But be encouraged. This is what I needed to hear when I was a freshman. The fact that the scoffers exist 
is proving the validity of God's word because he said that they would exist. So although it's incredibly discouraging to be around people who do not care about God's word, in some senses it should encourage us because the fact that those people exist is validating the word of Christ. So why do they scoff at the second coming? Why do they scoff at the idea that Jesus is coming again? Peter tells us it's because of their own sinful desires. I think back to this, this young man that I knew when I was a freshman, and it, he was always parading like it was some kind of intellectual journey of his. Like he's trying to think through these things logically. He just, he's just questioning the word of the Lord because it makes sense. Whereas Peter says right here, now he was questioning all these things because he knew if it was true, his sin was uncovered. His sin was uncovered. Here we have a mirror into the heart of those who are the most vehemently against the faith. It's incredible. There is a hardness in these people's hearts. A hardness that we must assume but also point out gently and lovingly. Which was difficult to do because we don't see it. But God says it's there. But... We must call it out, not because we see it, but because God says it's there. And if you put yourself into the mind of an unbeliever, they have, they have to fight the idea of Christ's coming. They have no hope, because if Christ does come, they have to uncover their sin. So therefore, they have to fight it. And this is why it's, an, it's healthy for us Christians to discuss the return of Christ as well because it forces us to confront the sins that we so often coddle, we so often cherish. Even us who are saved struggle with coddling sins, and we need a reminder that our master is coming back. So in verse 4, we see the scoffing. We see what precisely these people are saying. And notice what he says. They say, where is the promise of his coming? so bold. You can hear, you can kind of hear the sarcasm in the very words. Nowadays, it'd be like people saying something like this, like, that's ridiculous. Jesus never rose from the dead. How could he come back? You're an idiot to debase your life upon that. Or perhaps the most painful, well, what if he never comes back? What if he never shows up? It's been 2,000 years. My, my dad was deployed a couple of times when I was in uh, middle school and high school. And if somebody had come up to me when my dad was deployed and told me, your dad doesn't love you, he's not coming back, I would have gotten mad. I would have gotten mad and then probably gone to a back room and cried, depending on who told me that. Words like this should hit us similarly. When somebody who has no hope beyond this world scoffs at the idea that our Creator and our Savior is coming back, it should make us weep. It should make us sad, which is why we must share the Gospels. The Gospel. So notice the reason for why they question. They say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the beginning of creation, the fathers have, sorry, those who have fallen asleep, nothing has ever changed. Right here, the, the fathers, is, they're probably referring to the old, all the Old Testament believers. Ever since the beginning of the church, people have died and nothing has changed. I want to be really clear with this part. This is not a strong argument at all, but it sure is a painful argument. It is not strong logically, but it, it, it hurts. 
is a gut punch. Scoffers want Christian to think, Christians to think of all of their loved ones who have passed that they don't see anymore. They want us to think about every death we've ever witnessed and then let that feeling, that sorrow, that pain dictate our faith. I know I'm young, but even in my, my short 23 years of life, I've seen a decent amount of death. Um, a veteran I knew growing up, Mr. Richard, who died my sophomore year. Uh, my grandfather, he died when I was 12. Hunter Sizemore, Philip Silver, Tom Hughes just this week, and many others. Surely we have all had that fleeting moment of doubt of, is God there? Is he coming? And these scoffers, the world, Satan himself, wants to capitalize on that pain. He wants us to stew on the pain and the sorrow of those that we miss so that we don't remember the fact that Jesus is coming. As I said, this is not a strong argument, but it is a painful. We must not give in. We must trust by faith that God is loving. We must live by faith and not by sight. Yes, Christ has not come yet, but that does not mean he is not coming. Christians are marked as those who hear the promises of God and hold tightly to them, no matter what we see or feel. Before moving on, I do think it's it's necessary to ask one question, which is, How did the apostles and the earliest New Testament believers think about the coming of Christ? How did the apostles think about the coming of Christ? Some liberal scholars believe that the apostles thought Jesus would return immediately. And then when he didn't, they were disappointed and they had to write all these books in the New Testament to uh, kind of explain away why Jesus had not returned. That is baloney. Absolute rubbish. Don't buy it. Here is a way better definition. The faithful church has always been expectant for Jesus to come back at any moment, but never disappointed when he waits longer. I'm going to say this one more time. The faithful church has always been expectant for Jesus to come back at any moment, but never disappointed when he waits longer. If he comes now, salvation, we're with the Lord. If he waits, he's being patient and Do you think that Jesus is delaying? Do you truly believe that he is coming soon, maybe even tomorrow, maybe even during the service? Christ says that he he will come like a thief in the night when we least expect it. And the next time I preach, we'll be examining the following verses, which says this. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus is the master of this universe. It is his prerogative to determine when he returns. If he comes soon, he is just. If he waits, he is justly patient. As we look at these last three verses, verses 5 through 7, I want to encourage you, Peter doesn't just hear this scoffing and then take it. He does respond. So as we're walking through these, I want to encourage all of you, when you hear someone scoffing at the idea of Christ's return, respond to them. That could be their only hope in this world. So keep that in mind as we move forward. So this is the response, verses 5 through 7. Let me read it again for us so we can have it in our minds. Verses 5 through 7. 
For they, the scoffers, deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I love it when the Bible has mic drop moments, because this is one of them. Peter just buries these scoffers. First of all, notice it says they deliberately overlook. This is not something that they just don't know. This is something that scoffers suppress. As Romans 1 says, they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. But Peter has three reasons, and three responses to their argument. Number one, he points to the beginning of the world. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything from nothing. But then the next verse in Genesis shows us what this nothingness was like. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, implying surface of water. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God created everything from nothing, and it was this watery, watery, formless substance. And then he created everything from that substance, which is why he says, from water and through water, the heavens and the earth were created. And he did all of this by the power of his word, just by speaking. John 1 says this, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made, and apart from Him was not anything made that has been made. So Peter is basically saying, you're you're saying that everything has just continued the same way. But you're forgetting the fact that our God is not a child who builds a Lego set and then just leaves it somewhere and never thinks about it again. Our God is one who is actively involved in creation, who cherishes what he has made, who upholds it by his word, by Christ, every day. So when scoffers are saying, oh, everything's just kind of always been the same, they are doubting the power of God's word because God spoke and everything came to be. Secondly, Peter points back to the flood. Things haven't always been the same. Notice his argument. God spoke, boom, creation. God spoke, deluge, catastrophe, flood. This world completely was changed by the power of God's word. And the scoffers forget this. And and this is where they get it wrong. Things have not always been the same since the beginning of the world. And this is so opposite to what science teaches nowadays. Many in today's uh, day and age talk about science and natural law as if it's some kind of cosmic force to which the God of the universe has to bow and obey. And that is ridiculous. God spoke in all the natural laws of the world came to be. And he spoke, and that same world that he created was completely drowned, save those that he saved in the ark. This is a a quote by John Piper that I thought was excellent. John Piper says this, If God is free to speak a new word, then nature is free to change. We need to guard ourselves against the pseudo-scientific notion that nature is a law unto itself. It is not. 
The laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty. The tireless whisperings of the Almighty. And if he should raise his voice, the cataclysm will come. So these scoffers forget God's involvement in the beginning of the world. They also forget the fact that God God changed this world. And then he points to the end. God's word created this world. God's word changed this world. And God's word will end this world. Peter looks to the end where Christ's judgment will be marked by fire. Friends, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. In the same way as the beginning and the flood, the word of God has in store fire for this earth, a fire of judgment and refinement. Yes, God promised to Noah that he would never again flood the earth. That's true. But this same word now sustains the world and will judge it with fire. Listen to Isaiah chapter 66. Peter's not getting this from nowhere. He's getting it from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 through 16. The Lord says this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Woo! This is a picture of a conquering Jesus that we do not think about very often. Now, what does this look like in the details? We'll talk about that in the next sermon. We don't have the time for that this morning. But for, I want to encourage those of you this morning. All this language of judgment is terrifying to those who do not know the Lord. But for us who know Christ, we are, we are protected. Christ does not come as our judge. He comes as our Savior. The same trumpet call that will be terrifying to the unbeliever in that day will be the most beautiful song to us. So as, as I close... Um, Just take a moment with me and think about how we can sprinkle our conversations with thoughts about the coming of Jesus. Say you're dealing with a loss of money or financial troubles. There's such a beauty to saying, my my wealth is in the next world. I can lose it all and still have everything. Say you've suffered the death of a loved one. There's such a beauty in a Christian saying, yes, I am sorrowful, yes, I'm in pain, but I will see him again. Say you've witnessed injustice in this world in your workplace or what's going on in Ukraine troubles you. The Christian has a place to say all things will be made right one day. Say you struggle with sin in any any manner of ways. There is a beauty for the Christian saying, but when Christ returns, all this will end. There will be no more sorrow. Let us encourage one another, that we may be certain of the coming of Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement and the reminder of the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we may be those who do not shrink back in fear, but wait boldly in faith for our Savior to come back for us. I pray this all in the name of Jesus.